This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for July 20th, 2018. In this week's episode, we'll discuss some of the ways you can protect your digital legacy, plus some follow-up on Apple's USB restricted mode and how this new security features development may still be in flux. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. We've talked a lot on recent episodes about a new feature in iOS, which is called USB Restricted Mode. And in last week's update, 11.4.1, Apple rolled this out, and we didn't expect it. This has been in the iOS 12 betas for a while, and that's why we've discussed it. And it came out in last week's update. Now, the reason for this feature is to prevent people from connecting devices to the Lightning connector that might somehow be able to crack your passcode and get into your iPhone and access your data. There's a setting for this. If you go into the settings app and then touch ID and passcode or face ID and passcode, if you have an iPhone 10, there is a USB accessories toggle. Now, this is a bit deceptive because you'll see that this is in a section called allow access when locked. And if this setting is off, so the little toggle isn't green, that means USB restricted mode is on. That means that you can't have access when it's locked. If you toggle it to green, then you won't get any alerts about this. So what what happens is if you connect your iPhone or iPad to your computer, let's say, to charge it, and you haven't unlocked the device within an hour, so let's say you wake up in the morning and you connect it to charge, but you haven't unlocked it yet, then you'll see a dialogue saying, unlock iPhone to use accessories. Now, you won't see this if you connect your iPhone to a charger. In other words... The the iPhone knows that it's just a charger and it's not a device that can access data. Though I find that a little bit surprising because couldn't someone make a charger that doesn't show its true colors until after the device is connected? In any case, this is an interesting feature and I, I think we need to understand what this is all about. Right, so the idea behind this is mainly that if if your device has been locked for an hour that if somebody picks up your device, they won't be able to plug it into something and potentially get access to your data one way or another, whether it's through some sort of password cracking methodology, which is commonly something, well, more commonly, I guess, lately, something that law enforcement may have access to. Right, and we've talked about that on the show in the past. What Gray Key was one of them that actually does attempts to send thousands of passcodes in order to crack a device. And in fact, at this point, the alternative to that had been sending your device away to a company in Israel, Celebrite. And of course, if you had to do that, then your device is going to be locked for way more than an hour. And so if they've got iOS 11.4.1 or later, that's not going to work as an option anymore. So now basically, um, Gray Key is, is still the one on the market that can can do this. You know, so so what if that gray key falls into the wrong hands? What if somebody steals that from a law enforcement officer? Or what if a law enforcement officer is kind of doing something um, without authorization to unlock somebody's phone? Off the books, as they say. Yeah. So the, these are scenarios where you you don't want somebody to necessarily break into your phone. And well, and the idea also here is that the crooks 
can use the same methodology that GrayShift has done with their GrayKey product. There's nothing to prevent anyone else from trying the same thing and basically recreating a GrayKey type thing that can be sold on the black market to anybody who wants it. So Apple's goal here is not to actually prevent legitimate law enforcement attempts to, to access needed data. Apple very specifically is saying that's not our intent. Our intent is to keep bad guys out of your out of your phone. And it's worth pointing out, again, go into the settings, face ID and passcode or touch ID and passcode, that there are a whole bunch of settings about allow access when locked. And, and it's probably a good idea to look at these because imagine you get notifications of messages, right? And someone sends you a message saying, um, I'll meet you here at this time or, or here's the password that you want to use for something. And your phone is sitting there and anyone can pick it up and read your messages, see your notifications, access today, view control center, use Siri, even reply to messages, control your home and return missed calls. All of these are options in the allow access when locked section. It's a good idea to turn a lot of these off. I think it's a really great idea for people to go through this list of toggles because a lot of times, you know, these things can lead to ways to get into your device that you may not have anticipated. There have been a lot of um, lock screen bypasses that leverage one of these or other. Some clever way of, you know, oh, I pulled up Siri and I asked it to do this particular thing and now it effectively bypassed my lock screen because it went and did something else. That's not to say that there are will necessarily be more lock screen bypasses like that, but it's happened enough times and often through features like this. And so it's probably a good idea to turn some of these things off if you know you don't use or need them. Here's something interesting that a lot of people might not know. I'm on a local Facebook group, people in my town, and, and they're always talking about local things, and there was an accident here, and there's traffic there, and all that. And several times a week, someone finds a phone. How do I find who it belongs to? Well, if you ask Siri... Who does this phone belong to? You will find out. Siri will give you the name and phone number of the person the phone belongs to. If that person has set a me contact card, when you're in contacts, you have a card for yourself. And if you set that as your contact card, that information will come up. So if you were to turn this off, the Siri access when locked, then presumably that wouldn't be available. Siri, who does this phone belong to? I believe this iPhone belongs to Joshua. And at the same time, what you're not seeing is that there is a display of your contact card on the, the lock screen. And that contact card includes a number of things like the phone number and, and other ways to get in touch with someone. So this is a really interesting feature to leave on, even though Siri can potentially give access to other things. It is, as always, a trade-off between security and convenience, right? That's always the, the game that you've got to play, right? Do you want things to be a little bit easier for you, but potentially allow somebody else to maybe get into your device? So security and, and convenience are, are often at odds with each other for that reason. So we got a comment on this article from a listener and a reader, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the, the page where we talked about this last week. And the comment was basically pointing out that these things aren't clear and we want it to be more clear. Well, one of the problems is that this is in flux. We had seen this in the iOS 12 betas. We didn't expect it in iOS 11.4.1, but already in the latest iOS 12 betas, the behaviors changed slightly. 
So it's really hard to pin down a feature that's A, a new feature, B, that Apple hasn't really said much about, and C, that is evolving and that will change by the time iOS 12 comes around. And this is, of course, the risk of talking about something when it's a beta, and, and we've mentioned that every time we've talked about beta software, that we just don't know how much of what we see today is going to be there tomorrow. It's definitely a feature that could very well change several more times before iOS 12 is, is officially released. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how to protect your digital legacy in case something happens to you and you want people to be able to get access to all of your data. So we've mentioned in every episode of the podcast that you can win $100 by answering our survey. And I would like to announce the winner of the June survey. You'll get a $100 Visa gift card, and it will go out to Lloyd in Virginia. Lloyd, thank you for taking the time to answer the survey, and we'll be in touch real soon by email. If you'd like to win $100, there's a link in the show notes for this episode to our survey, and we'd be happy to hear what you think of the podcast. Intego is dedicated to better online safety practices, and the summertime offers a unique opportunity for parents and kids to become more cyber-aware and to be better educated about potentially harmful online content and activities. As part of our commitment to protecting children and teens online, Intego is offering a 50% discount with the purchase of our award-winning Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego Mac Premium Bundle X9 is our most feature-rich suite of internet security and backup software for your Mac. It contains everything you need to keep your Mac protected, secure, private, and clean, and includes antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware, two-way firewall network protection, Mac Cleaner to optimize your Mac, personal backup software for quick and easy recovery in case of a crash, parental controls with website and application blocking, you can get Intego's award-winning Mac Premium Bundle X9 for 50% off the suggested retail price by using this promo code at checkout. Premium 50. All one word, no spaces. Premium 50. Have a really safe summer by protecting your computers and your family from Internet dangers. Save 50% on Mac Premium Bundle X9 with the promo code PREMIUM50 at checkout. Visit Intego.com today. Josh, do you have life insurance? I do have life insurance, yes. Good. You're planning ahead for something that is more or less inevitable, but you're planning ahead to protect your family, and that's really important. Have you planned to protect your data? To some degree. <laughs> I can't say that I've necessarily got everything in some form that someone else can get a hold of it who may need to after my death. This is really important because more and more stuff about us is stored online in the cloud in someone else's computer behind a password protected firewall. That means that, and I don't want to make any suggestions, but if you were not here tomorrow, Josh, your wife would not be able to get into your iCloud account to get access to your stuff. In many cases, it might not be a big deal. Maybe your emails aren't that important. Maybe your text messages aren't that important. But what about all those photos that you've got in your iCloud photo library? What about all the music in your iTunes library? It's really, you know, on the one hand, we want to protect all of our data. But on the other hand, there will be a time when other people will need to access this. Now, you're a lot younger than me, so you've hopefully got a lot more time. But as you get old and gray like I am, you start thinking about these things. And for example, I have set things up in such a way that my son can access all of my data, my passwords, my accounts, and everything. 
if he needs to. Now, fortunately, I can trust my son. And I know that in some cases, people might not have family members they can necessarily trust. And that, of course, is another debate. But if something were to happen to me, he will know how to get into all my accounts. He'll know where to find the information. He'll know how to recover. I don't know. There's money in my PayPal accounts. There's money in other accounts. And I'm not even talking about bank accounts. There's photos in the cloud. There's music in the cloud. There's files in Dropbox. There's data all over the place. And while a lot of this wouldn't be essential to him or to my partner or to anyone else in my family, there is some that is important. There are certain things that you definitely want to make sure that people can get into. You mentioned photos. That's that's a really critical one. I mean, you think about, you know, especially if you've got kids, those are moments you'll never get back. If if you lost that that picture or that video uh, and had no way to recover that, um, that, that would be you know, that, that would be really sad too. Uh, and obviously some, the passing of somebody is really sad, but you don't want to compound that by, by, uh, you know, realizing that you now also lost a number of other, um, sentimental things. You mentioned that one of the things you might not be able to get into is somebody's email account or perhaps somebody's text messages. Now, email accounts are really important from the perspective that you need to get access to an email account often in order to reset somebody's password. So if you don't know the password for a very important account, often you can have a reset link emailed to that person. And if you don't have any way to to access that person's email account, you may not be able to reset the password if you don't know it. That's a good point. Of course, if you have two-factor authentication on an account, then that won't be sufficient. You'll need something else. You'll need to answer some of those security questions like what was the name of your favorite teacher and what was the name of your first dog, things like that. So there's a lot of data you need. And and of course, it depends on each service. Each service does it differently. One thing to note is that, you know, those terms and conditions that you never read, those things that would take a half a day to read when you sign up for an account. Well, according to certain, let's just take Apple, for example. And and so I'm going to link to an article I wrote for the Mac security blog. And there's one particular example where a widow sued Apple in 2016 to get access to data that belonged to her husband, because according to Apple's terms and conditions, nothing that you have stored or even purchased from Apple, you know, movies, music, books, etc., nothing belongs to you after your death. You cannot pass them on to anyone. But the problem with this is that Apple extends this beyond purchases to all data that's in your iCloud account, which is email, messages, photos, and it could be even files if you have them on iCloud Drive. Yeah, this is a really interesting case because, and as you point out in your article, Apple's iCloud terms and conditions very specifically say, unless otherwise required by law, you agree that your account is non-transferable and that any rights to your Apple ID or content within your account terminate upon your death. That's very specific. Right. And the only thing they say you can do is delete the account when a death certificate is provided. And so if you have a critical need to get access to someone's account, your, your legal you know, spouse or, or dependent, perhaps in some cases, if your child is a minor, you may need to get access to that account for some very legitimate reasons. And so it's very interesting to me that this lady was able to successfully, um, you know, take Apple to court and, and get access to her husband's account in this case. So what some people do, some couples will share the same Apple ID. And, and I remember in the earlier days of the Internet, I would often get emails signed Alice and Bob. You know, Alice and Bob both shared the same email account. I, I don't think as many people do it now because... 
this was back in the day when a couple or a family had a single computer. Now everyone has their own device. So it's more important to have their own email account. I, I really don't recommend that people do that for all the obvious reasons of snooping on someone else's email or Alice sends an email to Kathy talking about Bob and Kathy replies and Bob <laughs> reads the email and well, you know what happens after that. Not to mention it can make it very difficult for you to, you know, keep purchases a secret. Let's say that you're purchasing something for your significant other. Exactly. And you know, now they're gonna get your Amazon receipt. Here's an email confirming that you just bought that cruise to, you know, <laughs> to, to, to Antarctica that, that your your partner had wanted for so many years and the surprise is ruined. <laughs> right. But what I do suggest is that you make sure that the other person can get access to your account. Now, there are lots of ways to do this. I mentioned that I do this with my son. We share some encrypted files that, you know, have information about my accounts, about his account. You could also just put your password in a safe deposit box if you have one, or if you have a safe at home. I mean, don't stick it on a post-it on your computer, please. That's, you know, we don't, we don't want to recommend that. But there are places you can put things at home that would be hard for people to find. Now, bear in mind that when you do that, you may be changing your password at some point and you have to update it every time you change your password. And and it is recommended to change your password regularly, maybe less often if you have two-factor authentication like on your Apple ID account. This requires some follow-up. You don't just do this once and forget about it. If you do, for example, hide your sticky note with a password on it in some, you know, favorite book of yours, and then, you know, it comes out that uh, there was a, a password database breach at this company. And so you, you might remember to update your password in your password manager. But if you haven't also updated that sticky note... <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and uh, if somebody, you know, your significant other knows to look for the sticky note in that particular page of that particular book on yourself, that might be out of date by the time that they see that. So you mentioned password manager, and that's actually a good point, because the idea of having a single password that gets access to all the passwords in your password manager means that you've only got the one password to worry about. And that wasn't a way of mentioning a specific password manager. But Rather than the sticky note for your Apple ID, you might just want to have the sticky note for that password manager, and you know you're going to change it every year or something. Because your password manager is not available online. It's not something that people can use a brute force attack to, to hack. As long as it's a relatively secure password, I think it's a lot safer than, say, your Apple ID password, which people might be able to get through with security questions and, and other trickery. The idea of using a password manager is a really good one because, so for my password manager has passwords to all my accounts everywhere I log in, but I've also got secure notes with all my bank accounts. I've got serial numbers for my software. I've got all sorts of data in there. And the password manager allows you to share those passwords with someone else. Even right now, you could be sharing your passwords with someone who needs them, or you could share a subset of your passwords by creating a new vault and adding certain passwords into it so the other person can get in. I think for a lot of people, the, the whole idea of having so much important information all in one you know, data store, like a password manager, I think a lot of people get really nervous about that idea. But I think what's important for, for people to remember is look at what the alternative is, for one thing. If the alternative is reusing passwords or using weak passwords that you can easily remember, then that leaves you up to a number of other, you know, potential attacks and, and people being able to break into your accounts. 
generally, I, I would say that probably most security experts at this point are really recommending that you use a password manager, but that you have a really strong password to get into your password manager. And ideally, if you can, have a second factor that's required. Um, so maybe it's a Google Authenticator token, maybe it's a secure key device or something like that, but have another factor other than your password. And then that significantly raises the barrier to be able to, for somebody to be able to break into your password manager. Yeah. And again, security versus convenience, right? This makes things more and more complicated. And we're in a situation where so much of our data depends on passwords. Uh, one solution that I like is using an encrypted disk image. And in my article, I link to another article on the Intego Mac security blog. You can create an encrypted disk image into which you can put a whole bunch of files. You can store it on Dropbox or Google Drive in a shared folder, right? It's easy to share folders on Dropbox. And you'll have a password that your partner, children, parents know to be able to access that encrypted disk image. And you can put as much data in there as you want. You can put a single text file with your master password to your password manager or 10 other passwords or a hundred files. You can put anything you want in it. You know, th there's no limit in size and these are only text files. So they're not going to take up a lot of space. You can also put secret photos in the encrypted disk image. Here's an idea. Take a photo of your password. Type it on screen, take a photo or a screenshot, put it in the encrypted disk image. So there's no way that there's even the text of your password in there. A couple of comments about this. Okay, so I, I've used this trick myself, and, and I agree that using an encrypted disk image is a great way to go. But one thing to be aware of is that people who don't use a Mac... Let's let's say you want to share uh, that encrypted disk image with somebody else. If they've got Windows or even if they've just got iOS, they have no way to open that disk image. So that is a limitation. Good point. However, and there's another point. There was recently discovered this sort of uh, side channel attack, you might call it, a way for people to be able to see previews of disks that you don't currently have mounted. So for example, pr a preview image, if you've got an, an image file- With Quick Look. With Quick Look, what Apple does on Macs is they, they, um, they cache or kind of make a little miniature version of those images that you've used Quick Look. So if you've, if you've clicked on it and hit spacebar or something like that to bring up a little preview image, that preview image is actually cached. It's stored on your Mac's internal hard drive. So if you've got image files, pictures of your, of your passwords, you may want to be careful about using Quick Look on those things or Alternatively, there are ways that you can actually turn off those quick look caches um, to avoid those kind of things being stored on your Mac's internal drive. I'll have a link in the show notes to an article explaining how to do this. It's a little bit finicky, but Josh explains it very well in his article. So all of this brings up something that's really interesting that, you know, we depend so much on passwords. We're, we're starting to get face recognition now. Will passwords be going away and be replaced by face recognition? Of course, there's all the problem of identical twins. Fingerprints really aren't the ideal solution. You know, I don't know about you, but I've got hundreds of passwords in my password manager. I've got so many that I can't even remember how many there are. I'm going to look right now. I'm going to open my password manager. I have 1,993 items. Granted, some of them are multiple logins for the same website. Like for Amazon, you get 
depending on where you sign into Amazon, it'll be a slightly different URL and the password manager is going to remember multiple different pages. But nearly 2,000 items, let's say if it's half that, that's 1,000 passwords. No one can remember all that. Without a password manager, it's hopeless. And, you know, how do we go on in the future knowing that all of this stuff is there and we need to be aware of it? And it, it, it seems like this is intractable. Uh, yeah, the password conundrum is something that it's, it's still around after all this time. You know, we've known for for decades that passwords are not necessarily the best way to secure something. But the problem is that it's something that everybody knows and we haven't really had a good alternative that's that's in common use, at least to this point in time. There are a couple of solutions that are kind of, you know, trying to make their way to the forefront that are trying to gain, you know, mass adoption. And it hasn't happened yet, at least. I think the best that we can do at this point in time is wherever possible to, to use that two-factor authentication and try whenever possible to actually use two-factor. If, if there, There's a distinction between two-step authentication and two-factor. Two-step in some cases can mean that you're sometimes would be called incorrectly your second factor is really coming to you on the same device. An example would be if you are using your uh, Safari browser on your iOS device and you type in your password and then the next screen says, okay, now we're going to text you a code. Well, if you're getting a text message on your same device where you're putting in your password, that's not really two factors technically. It's not even the text message because Apple's two-factor authentication does that. You get the alert on the device saying, someone is logging in from here. Do you want to allow it? You tap allow, then you get the code, then you switch back to your browser to type it in. So even Apple's implementation is, is wrongly done like that. Yeah, so so there there are some flaws even sometimes with two-step or two-factor authentication, but it's still a lot better than just relying on a password because then at least it it significantly raises that barrier to entry. So passwords are, are still going to continue to be a problem. Um, there's still going to be password database breaches all the time. Uh, we mentioned once on the show, I think, um, Have I Been Pwned, which is a website where you can go and kind of sign up for breach notifications and things like that if your email address is ever dumped in a, in a password leak. Sometimes those are hashed passwords so it's not the, the exact password but sometimes those ha those password hashes that kind of shadow or footprint of a password if they're not done securely they can sometimes be reversed meaning bad guys get a whole bunch of new passwords and ways to get into people's accounts if they haven't reset their password. So I would also suggest that people sign up for a notification service like that to become aware if one of these passwords that you've got out there does potentially get breached. One thing that I'm noting while you've been talking there, I've been listening, but I've also been scrolling through my passwords and my password manager. There are so many websites here that I don't even remember ever being involved in. And, and that's even scary in a certain way, because fortunately I do use passwords created by my password manager. So, you know, they're 14 random characters but it's scary when you think how many different websites you have signed up for and how many people have data about you that you may never even be using again, that you've maybe used once. 
you know, a store where you bought something online once um, and you had to create a password. Or uh, I'm just looking at like different things and I don't even, some of the, I just don't even know what some of these things are anymore. You know, I do see things where I recognize, yes, this was a store and this was a website where I wanted to post a comment. So I just had to log in. So I just had to create an account and log in to post a comment. But there's so many of them. I'd, I'd really like to have an alternative to this. One of the potential solutions, if it ever gets, you know, widespread adoption, and we may have mentioned this before, I don't recall, but there's a, a new concept um, created by uh, a guy called Steve Gibson, who has a, a security podcast on the Twit Network. He has this idea called Squirrel, S-Q-R-L. It takes the idea of passwords and kind of flips it on its head, where now, instead of you proving who you are to the website, the website proves who it is to you. And this is done through a process that involves, uh, in some cases, scanning a QR code, or if you've got a device that doesn't have a camera, it could be uh, typing something in. But it's it's done in you know in such a way that it doesn't require you to memorize all kinds of different passwords for all kinds of different websites. It's kind of a clever concept. But uh, again, this is not something that is really out there. No websites are actually using this really yet. That's a bit of a problem then. <laughs> Which is, yeah, it's not useful unless it gets adopted by the big sites. So people have tried coming up with solutions like this to replace the password. And it's just a hard sell because everybody knows passwords. And so the big sites are going to kind of stick with what people are comfortable with. Well, the idea of a password is something we're familiar with and, and more and more so. But, uh, you know, as you've said, there's just too many of them and they're too complicated, but we can't solve that. We've talked about passwords. I'll link in the show notes to one of our earliest episodes where we talked about passwords and we gave some techniques for creating secure passwords. But uh, we both use a password manager because there are so many of them, you know, nearly 2,000 logins in mine. And if, as I said, maybe half of them are actual things and the others are multiple logins on a site. I can't, can you imagine trying to remember 1,000 passwords? And this is why everyone uses the same password for the same site, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, as if that was going to be, you know, unique. It's true that you could take a random six-digit number if you can remember it, and that gives you, what, you know, a million possibilities, so it's not that easy to crack. It's, anything's better than one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, yeah, but please try try to use a password that's longer than six characters. <laughs> It depends on what you're trying to secure, right? If, if if you're just trying to prevent people from getting into your iPhone, maybe that's convenient to have a six-digit uh, password. It's still crackable, um, but it's going to take a lot longer. Okay, until next week, I'm going to spend some time today going through my password manager and deleting some of the duplicates and weeding out sites that I've only used once and never plan to use again. Maybe you might want to do the same thing, and we'll report back next week and see what we found. Until then, stay secure, Josh. Stay secure, Kirk. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.